Okay, it's good to uh, see all of you here today, especially for those of you who uh, may have been out late last night with the wedding. It's especially good to have you here as well. Let's open the Word of God. Dear Father, we thank you for bringing us here today, and we really pray that as we look at this uh, very relevant topic today, that you help us to understand how to make sense of the world, how to make sense of your Word, and how to see uh, that your words uh, do not contradict what we see around us in science. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, there was a Time magazine cover on November 13, 2006, which said, uh, God versus science. And I think that reflects very much the a common theme that comes up in the media between the struggle between science and God. Right? So you see other things like, is God dead? Okay, and uh, just... This January, which was just uh, about uh, 10 months ago, and uh, I found this on the internet, you know, they'll say things like there's some new theory of science, which as a result of this new theory of science shows that the existence of God or disproves the existence of God. And I think that in many ways, when we look at the media, it's very much portrayed in the sense of the good versus the evil, right? So science, in a sense, okay, so I've got this... Uh, New slides today. Nice. Next slide. Science is like betrayed to be like the, the good guys, right? They are the guys who are acquiring knowledge, real knowledge through evidence, through testing, and they represent the light of progress, the forces of truth. And then Christians in the church, well, they are the bad guys. They are the forces of darkness. You know why? Because they believe in superstition. They are to suppress and hinder and impede progress. They're here to stop science and truth. And according to this narrative, whenever science is in advance, then religion and Christianity is in retreat. Right? It's like um, what uh, this author, uh, atheist author Sam Harris says, it's like a zero-sum game. You know what a zero-sum game is? It's where one side wins, then the other side must lose. Right? And when the other side wins, the other side must lose. It's like there are no win-win situations. It's like they are against one another. Now, I think that when you really want to boil it down, uh, what uh, the media or the world conceives of this uh, narrative of conflict is in two areas, right? So these two areas are up here. In the sense where whenever science discovers a truth, then somehow Christianity in the church loses this zero-sum game idea, okay? And then there's also the other idea where science somehow has been impeded or held back for centuries because of the superstition of Christianity or the church. I'm sure many of you are aware of these narratives. Maybe when you look at the newspaper, when you speak to your friends, they'll have those sort of ideas like, oh, you know, did you hear about this latest science discovery which disproves God? Or, you know, all these centuries uh, have, uh, have been impeded because the church or Christianity has stopped the progress of science. Now, the question is, is this narrative true? Is this conception that many people have reality of the conflict between Christianity and science? Well, I think first up, let's address the issue about uh, the idea where whenever there's a scientific discovery, it goes on to disprove the existence of God. Because fundamentally, what is science? See, science is just trying to understand phenomena, right? Trying to understand things. It's, it's trying to understand how things work. 
That's all science is. You know, I see things, I want to understand it, I want to know how it works. So I look up at the planets in the sky, and I try to understand the universe. Well, that's the science of astronomy. Uh, not astrology, right? Astronomy, okay? You understand the difference? I look at the oceans under the sea, and I try to understand, you know, the ocean currents and things like that. That's the science of oceanography. I try to understand the weather, that's meteorology, the science of meteorology. I look at animals, the science of zoology. I try to understand plants, the science of ecology. I try to understand fossil records, that's the science of paleontology. See, all these things are just seeking to understand what is happening, the phenomena of things around me. But in most of science, when you think about it, there is no meaningful connection with Christianity or religion or God in any way. It doesn't make any outright religious statement. So, you know, I discover a new crab species uh, off, you know, Pulau somewhere in, you know, Malaysia or something. doesn't have any religious significance, right? I discover some new ocean self, uh, shelf deep, deep down in the, in the Pacific Ocean again. There's no religious significance. I find a new virus. There's no religious significance. I find a new way of measuring speed. There's no, no religious significance. I find a new particle again. There's no religious significance, right? In fact, if you look to Google, there are thousands of scientific journals in every scientific field which PhD people are perpetually writing articles for. And and the media basically has no interest in saying that uh, any of these discoveries have any effect on science, Christianity, God, or religion. But actually... The idea that there is a conflict between science and God comes about really in two areas. Right? If you look at the media, if you see what people are thinking, there are only really two areas in which this conflict seems to be given uh, reality or evidence. Right? And these two areas are in the area of evolutionary science, Charles Darwin, and Galileo, right? cosmology. Okay? So we've already spoken about evolution about uh, two weeks ago. And basically, if you think about the conflict that uh, is portrayed in the media when you talk to people, it comes in, in these two ways, right? So again, I use the... What happened to the Star Wars picture? What oh, is the next one, is it? Ah, the Star Wars picture. Okay, alright. So what they basically say is that uh, evolutionary science has shown that living beings have come about, the different species have come about through many, many millions of years of evolution. But... This disproves the Bible because the Bible taught myths that they were created in seven days. Right? And the word myths here is not a word which I come up with. Uh, if you go and read the, the writings of many atheists, they will say, yes, the Bible is made up of myths, and the chief myth is the seven-day creation. But like we saw in the first sermon, which was three weeks ago, this uh, so-called myth is only a myth in the mind of many uh I guess, opponents of Christianity. Because for many, many Christians, through thousands and thousands of years, they do not actually read uh, Genesis 1 and 2 as a literal seven-day creation. And if you do not read Genesis as a literal seven-day creation, 24-hour-day creation, then there is no conflict between God and science, and the Bible and science. So, just to give you a summary of what we went through, remember, we said... In the 3rd century, which is 200 years after Jesus, uh, this very famous theologian had already said, What person of interest, I ask, will consider as a reasonable statement that the first and the second and third day 
in which they are said to be both morning and evening, existed without sun and moon and stars, while the first day was even without heaven. I do not think that anyone will doubt that. Right? Uh, I do not think that anyone will doubt that these are figurative expressions which indicate certain mysteries through a semblance of history. So right at the very start, people are already saying, I don't think we're meant to read Genesis 1 and 2 in a literal 24-hour day. The next person, who is probably one of the most uh, important Christian theologians in the first thousand years of uh, Christian history, was Augustine. And Augustine said that he did not read the opening chapters of Genesis in a literal way. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, again, a very, very important theologian, said that he did not feel there was any tension between science and the opening of Genesis. So if you look at this graph here, this uh, timeline, so not graph, you'll see that in the first 100 and, uh, no, 100, 1,500 years uh, of the church, of uh, Christian thinking, uh, already many, many very noted theologians and Christian leaders. These are not cult leaders, okay? You go and Google these people's names and you see that these are very notable Christian thinkers. They did not read the Bible as a literal seven-day creation. And next slide. When uh, Charles Darwin, did I put the circle there? Oh, do you have to click? Ah, yeah. When Charles Darwin, okay, this is the original uh, uh, book that he wrote, right? 1859. When he wrote his book about the origin of species, he wasn't attacking uh, specifically seven-day creation to begin with. He was actually a Christian to begin with, um, Charles Darwin. And some people actually say that he was a Christian even to the day he died because he was very Christian. But we won't go into that because the sermon will go too long and some people feedback. I have too many details already anyway. So, But you can read it out on your own about Charles Darwin. But, but it shows that actually at the time when the uh, theory of evolutionary science came about, that it wasn't actually creating uh, a theory to go against uh, what the Bible was saying, because for thousands of years before that, people had not believed in the seven-day creation. And as we saw again in that sermon, when the, uh, the theory of evolution was proposed by Charles Darwin, the Christians of his day did not seem to have a, a great problem with his theory and its implications in terms of Genesis 1 and 2. So here was uh, this guy, uh, William Henry Dallinger. And initially what you find is when you read a lot of literature, you find that many, many people, as we will see later on, who were scientists were surprisingly at the same time very religious people. Uh, and some of them were actually pastors. So this guy was actually a pastor and he was also a member of the Royal Society. The Royal Society was like the, the British Institute of Sci- uh, Scientists, right? And he, in 1887, said that he gave an unreserved acceptance of evolution. Uh, another guy, so George Stokes, also a Christian, said that even an extreme adoption of evolution is not inconsistent with theism. And I said also in 1880 that this Christian biologist in America was very instrumental in bringing about the acceptance of the theory of evolution to America. And even the great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield and this guy is very, very notable. I went to the bookshop just the other day, SKS. You can still find a whole shelf of his books in SKS bookshop, in the Christian bookshop in Singapore. And he said, I am free to say for myself that I do not think that there is any general statement in the Bible or any part of the account of creation 
given as either in Genesis 1 or 2 or elsewhere alluded to, that need to be opposed to evolution. See, the problem is that there is no struggle between God and science. It's just a struggle between science and a particular way of reading the Bible. But we've already seen that for many, many Christian thinkers, many notable theologians, they didn't struggle with science in that sense because they didn't read the Bible in that way. And I think that as we come to the book of Genesis, as we come to other parts of the Bible, we have to be sensitive to the different genre of how God is communicating to us. So, when uh, people try to say to you, or the media try to say to you, that there's some struggle between science and God, especially in the area of creation, then actually, to me, that's false, right? Because even in some of the books that I read by Christian apologists, it is only a struggle between science and a Christian, and a particular way of reading uh, the Bible, which is was not widespread then, was not widespread at the time of Dawkins, uh, sorry, not Dawkins, uh, at the time of uh, uh, Charles Darwin, and uh, even today. Now, what about the other issue? Okay, so sometimes people will say to, have said, this is something that someone has said to me, right? They'll say that, oh, you know, you can see that uh, there's a struggle between God and science because, you know, didn't the church uh, put Galileo uh, to death? Oh, didn't didn't uh, Galileo get persecuted by the church because, you know, he was trying to advance science and he was going against uh, the church and the Bible? Now, I think that's a common misconception. I think it really very much is like a myth because I don't know if anybody has come up to you and used the word Galileo to you, but I'm not sure if they really understand who Galileo was and what the historical circumstances were. I think it's very simplistic. So I'm going to try to explain to you the whole process of what happened, right? So first of all, it wasn't as if um, the church taught everybody that they must believe that the sun revolved around the earth. Right? Uh, if you look at theological Christian writing from the very earliest times, it wasn't as if uh, the theologians and, and people at church were saying, okay, today for the sermon, we're going to teach you that uh, the sun revolves around the earth. Actually, even uh, very early on, prior to the 6th century, so there's this guy in uh, 170 to 170 AD who is called Ptolemy. I don't know whether you all heard Ptolemy. Um, but he was a, a Greek astronomer. All right? And he was the one who actually proposed the theory that the earth was stationary and that the sun revolved around it. And when you actually think about it, the reasons why he proposed it seemed like a very logical thing. Because remember, what is science? Science is trying to understand phenomena. Science is trying to understand how things work. So, if I'm a Greek astronomer living in the time of Jesus Christ, and I look around me, I'm standing here, right? I don't seem to be moving. Are you moving? We seem to be still, right? Well, if we're still, then it must be that the sun is going around us, right? Because I don't feel as if I'm moving. I definitely don't feel as if I'm moving at all. And, uh, well, you know, it's just like when I look at my NEA app and my phone, you know, it says sunrise, sunset. Well, the sun rises, the sun sets. I don't feel as if I'm moving. It's the, it's, it's the sun that's moving around me. And um, people in those days used to say, well, you know, if we were moving, then if I throw a stone up in the air, 
then then surely the stone would land somewhere else, right? If the if the earth was moving around, don't you think that sounds logical, isn't it? And um, well, you know, if the earth was moving, then why is it we're not like leaning leaning against the movement, right? It's, it's, I mean, what's happening here? But then in 1543, next slide, this guy called Copernicus. Have you ever heard of Copernicus? Okay, he was a he was a, also a Christian, and he wrote a book which was dedicated to the Pope. Okay, so again, the church and science were very, very interest, intricately uh, entwined in those days, right? So he wrote this book dedicated to the Pope, and he advanced the theory that actually the Earth revolved around the Sun. And what makes um, some of these early scientists so fantastic is actually he couldn't prove why that might be so. But what he found was that using only mathematics, right, which is really amazing, only using mathematics, he found that he could better predict the planetary orbits if you assume that the Earth was moving around the Sun rather than the other way around, than the Sun was moving around the Earth. Wasn't well, that amazing that you can use maths to sort of figure out that actually it makes more sense for the Earth to be revolving around the Sun. Anyway, so what he said was, uh, he wrote to the Pope and he says, so accordingly, since nothing prevents the Earth from moving, because you know the Earth is not like, you know, anchored somewhere, and we're just a planet, I suggest that we now consider also several motions, that whether several motions suited so that it can be regarded as one of the planets, for it is not the center of all the revolutions. Now, Copernicus was not persecuted. He was not tortured. He didn't stop. He wasn't stopped by the church of doing science. In fact, his ideas led to a major discussion within the scientific and religious community. And uh, they, they were very interested in what he was saying, but they couldn't prove what Copernicus was saying. So Galileo comes along half a century later, 50 years later, and he was an Italian astronomer. And by that stage, they developed more powerful telescopes. So he was able to make observations of Jupiter and Venus and the Sun. And he found it consistent with Copernicus' theory that the Sun was actually the center and the Earth revolved around it. Then he took his findings to the Jesuits. You know, the Jesuits were Catholic order. And they were the leading astronomers today. Imagine that the Jesuits, right? They were the leading astronomers today. And they agreed with his findings. They said, maybe a Copernicus was right. Maybe you are right. And the surprising thing was actually Galileo at his day was a celebrity. Right? Imagine he's like a scientist celebrity. When he came to Rome, he was greeted with great fanfare. And the Pope actually supported his theory. The, the Pope of his day supported his theory. And uh, But what they said was, after they investigated his claim, well, experience tells us plainly that the earth was standing, is standing still. Nevertheless, if there were real proof that the sun is in the center of the universe and that the sun does not go around the earth, but the earth around the sun, then we should proceed, have to proceed with great circumcision explaining passages of scripture which appear to teach the contrary, but rather admit that we do not understand them than to declare an opinion to be false which is proved to be true. But this is not the thing to be done in haste, and as for myself, I shall not believe that there, sh there are such proofs until they are shown to me. So this is all very scientific. You know, in science, what you do is you have data, and the data needs to back up your theory. And what the Catholic Church found during that time, even though the Pope was supportive, was that Galileo had not proved his case beyond doubt. 
And therefore, they were unwilling to accept it. So they said, okay, Galileo, you go off, you do more scientific research and come back and explain to us, but don't go and publish any more of your theories until you can prove them. But the problem was, in 1632, Galileo uh, published a book called The Dialogue Concerning Two Chief World Systems. And this is where all the problems began. Because Galileo went against his promise. He was meant to do research, he was meant to get evidence, and then come back and show that, and prove uh, to the the Catholic authorities his theory. But instead, he published a book without them uh, going through it, and he actually proposed his theory. Now, there there were a few problems, because the Pope that was actually supporting him had already died, and there was a new Pope, right? And um, one of his chief uh, proofs in his book was that the ocean tides uh, showed that the, the earth was moving around the sun. But actually, when you think about it, why, why do the ocean tides move? The moon, right? So it was, it, it, the proof that he had was actually wrong. And he also said that the, 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 the planets move in a circular path, but actually another astronomer, Kepler, had already shown that they move in an elliptical path. But that wasn't uh, the main problem of his book, you see. The, the main problem of his book was that actually uh, he wrote his book in the form of a dialogue between two people. Uh, I think it was uh, himself and another character. And the character uh, was actually called Simplicio, which it probably in Italian means simpleton, right? And this simpleton was meant to represent, who, guess who? The Pope, right? So... So his book actually effectively called the, 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 the new pope a simple term or, or like an idiot, right? Okay? And then within his own writings also, he advanced his own theory about scriptural interpretation. Now the Jesuits had warned him not to go into this area because scripture was the province of the church. And, and also in history during this time was the Reformation. And if you remember the Reformation, it was where... People, like many, many churches were breaking away from the Catholic Church and they were interpreting the Bible for themselves. So this was a very, very dangerous time for Galileo to be doing this because A, you insult the Pope, B, you go against your word, and C, you're undermining uh, the religious teachings of the Church. So he was called in as part of the Inquisition, but he wasn't tortured and he wasn't put in a dungeon. In the end, he was put under house arrest, but he was allowed to leave his house to visit his daughters outside in Italy. And he was allowed to continue his scientific work. He was allowed to publish uh, his scientific uh, research. And he died of natural causes in 1642. So actually, when you you actually go into the history and you read of Galileo, you see that this so-called conflict between science and the church, or science and God, is actually... Not really true. It's, it's a lot more complicated. It's not just about science. It's not as if Galileo was banned from doing science. There were so many other factors involved and he was allowed to do other science. And, and in fact, Galileo himself had a lot to, to be blamed for what happened to him because he actually went against the Pope himself and he called the Pope a simpleton. And this was a new Pope. And it was a context in which there were reformation and a lot of you know political conflict happening. And he was one of the collateral damage because of it. So when you think about the next slide, uh, this so-called narrative that uh, people explain or the media explains, well, again, I believe it's, it's false, right? 
In fact, this is what Galileo said. No, that's the next, another slide. Okay, don't worry. In fact, Galileo remained a faithful Catholic to the end of his life. But we'll hear more about from Galileo, I think, later on. Okay. Now, as we can see from both of these illustrations, from evolution and from Galileo, science can be quite helpful in the sense where it confirms to people that they are reading the Bible in the wrong way. Right? Because you know, for thousands of years, people had already said, well, we shouldn't read Genesis 1 and 2 as literal seven days. Right? The, the, the narrative or the genre of the text doesn't seem to, to be what God is communicating to us. Now, the Bible that we have today is 66 books inspired and written by one God, but inspired and written through different individuals. And it's not like a telephone book, you know, because, you know, the telephone book is one genre, right? It's just basically information. But the Bible, because it's written and inspired by God through different people, actually is made out of much different sorts of, uh, of styles of writing to communicate what God wants to say, right? So there's poetry, uh, there's historical writing, there's apocalyptic literature, there's songs, there's law, there's wisdom literature. So we need to read the Bible in context, and within context, we need to see how that particular chapter, how that particular verse, how that particular book is trying to communicate God's information to us. And I think the problem for us is that for people, they try to read the Bible in a predominant way. So I always want to read the Bible as a story. I like stories. So I read everything like a story, like an allegory, like a parable. Or maybe I like to read everything literally. Everything I want to read in the Bible is literal. Or I try to read everything as history, but it's not. Or I try to read like a scientist, but it's not. See, because the Bible has different ways of communicating, and you need to be sensitive to, to how the Bible is communicating to you. So let's take, for instance, what Jesus says here, okay, Matthew chapter 19. So Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, what is the genre or style of literature here? Uh, it's a hyperbole, right? So if you look at the Oxford Dictionary, hyperbole is where you make an exaggerated statement which you can't, which you can't actually do literally, right? It's a bit like saying, I'm so hungry, I could eat a horse. But I, I'm not really, you know, I, I, I don't expect you to serve me a horse and I don't expect to finish a horse, right? Or, you know, I'm so tired I could sleep for a week. But you don't expect me to really sleep for a week. I'm just saying I'm really, really tired, right? And what Jesus is saying here is, he's trying to say it is really, really, it's so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's almost like impossible, right? Because you can't get a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It is just the biggest animal, the smallest opening to show the impossibility of it. But the problem is that some people, even commentators, biblical commentators, cannot see that Jesus is speaking in a hyperbole. So they'll say that in, in Jerusalem there is a gate where it's called the eye of a needle, where as a camel, you have to get the camel to kneel on the floor and to go in. So that means the only way to get to heaven is to be very humble and to be on your knees. The only problem is that they've never found a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle, or which is shaped that way. It's just because people are not sensitive 
to the genre of how the Bible is trying to communicate. Again, during the time of Galileo, right, uh, the Catholic Church had problems with uh, these three passages, right, 1 Chronicles and Psalms. And they all say the same thing, Tremble before him all the earth, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. Okay, in Psalm 93, the Lord reigns, he is robed in majesty, the Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. Psalm 96, say among the nations, the Lord reigns, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved, he will judge the people with equity. Now here in these three sections, three verses, it's not really using scientific language to say that the planet earth is fixed, right, and it's arbitrary, uh, I'm not an astronomer, and it's arbitrary... Whatever, right? It's not trying to say, uh, the, the original writer is not trying to use a, a, a cosm- cosmological uh, understanding to explain God. He's just trying to say that God's judgment, God's power is as fixed as the, the, the land under our feet, right? It's trying to say that the world is firmly established in that way. It's that there's nothing more solid than the world. It's like, that's all he's trying to say. He's not trying to make a cosmological statement. And I think that when uh, the early Christians tried to make it a cosmological statement, they were actually going beyond what the Bible was actually saying. So I like what Galileo said. If you look up here, I click it again. So Galileo was actually a very, very strong believer in the Bible. Sorry, it's a bit small. He said, I think in the first place that it is very pious to say and prudent to affirm that the Holy Bible can never speak untruth whenever its true meaning is understood. And what did Galileo mean by that? Okay, next slide. And Galileo famously said, the Bible teaches us how to go to heaven and not how the heavens go. Right? So he, for, for, for himself, he was convinced that the Bible is not a scientific document in terms of understanding the cosmos. Right? Because they were interpreting it wrongly. Because really, those passages in Psalms and was actually trying to teach us something about the nature of God and not about the nature of cosmology. So I think when there is a conflict between science and, the, and God, it's not so much the conflict between science and God, but the, the conflict between science and a wrong understanding of the Bible, understanding which is not sensitive to the context or the genre or the different ways in which the Bible communicates. Now, the second question that we posed was, next slide. Oh. Mm. Oh, no more Star Wars picture. Is that Star Wars picture? No more, okay. The second question that we asked was, does Christianity and the church obstruct science? Right? Does science, has its progress been impeded by, you know, religion and God and superstition, because that is what, if you read uh, some atheist literature, they will say, they will say, oh, you know, Christians through the centuries have been stopping science. Well, I think that when you actually do even a little bit of investigation, you'll see that that's absolutely false. This guy is uh, Francis Bacon. Uh, I don't know if any of you have heard of this guy, Francis Bacon. He's called the father of the modern scientific method. Right. So many people say that modern science as we understand it today started with him. He is the father of it. Because he was the one to first propose uh, empiricism, 
which is where you no longer get uh, knowledge because you just read ancient documents, but you actually do experiments. Right? So whenever we think of science today, we think of scientists and laboratories doing experiments, getting more and more data, proposing a theory, then testing the theory, proposing another theory, testing and te- you know that sort of theory test, theory test, get more and more data until you finally uh, find out how things work. Okay? Well, we think that's very common sense, but actually that was actually proposed by Francis Bacon. And also, he was uh, the first one to propose that science was a collective uh, effort based on scientists working all over the place, funded by the government, to, to do research. Right? What we assume is, is as, as you know, scientists come together, go to university, research together, funded by the you know, research institutes. He was the one that proposed these things. But yet, Francis Bacon was a very, very religious and extremely devout man. He wrote commentaries on Psalms. And he wrote a book on prayer. Alright, so he wasn't some sort of, you know, like, go to church only on, on Easter and Christmas sort of person, right? So, even from its very beginning, uh, science was based and started by people who were very, very godly. It, 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 there wasn't a contradiction where, you know, we think that, oh, science broke out of the bondage of Christianity and God. So I went to the internet and you can see these two slides. And one is uh, a picture from the Atheist Society, which sort of gives you this picture where the brain, right, is being held back by religion, of which one of them is uh, Christianity. And Richard Dawkins, right, in the slide says, you know, what he hates about Oh, can you go back again? What do you, you know, what worries him about religion is that it teaches people to be satisfied with not understanding. You remember we said science is all about understanding. Okay, and there's another one I found on the internet, right, where it says, oh, you know, the dark ages of Christianity. So, you know, during Christianity, you know, all sort of science was being held back. But it's, it's actually completely false, this picture. Because the very first observatories, the very first medical research institutions, the very first universities were all set up with, with the church, the church endorsing it, the church supporting it. And the earliest Christians were at the forefront of science. So think of the leading scientists in history, which is the next slide. And these are all Christians, all the people up here are all Christians. And some of them were priests, some of them were monks, some of them wrote commentaries. So, this Gazendi and Messine, they were priests. Uh, Mendel, okay, so Mendel is the next person here. He was actually a very key person in the theory of evolution because he was the one who identified genes and by understanding genes was able to, to show how natural selection works. So when, when Darwin came along, he said, okay, these, these things were happening, the origin of species, but he couldn't understand how is it the species were sort of having natural selection, but it was only because Mendel worked with genes that he was able to add to the modern theory of evolution that we understand today. Isaac Newton wrote commentaries on the book of Daniel. Can you imagine? We just studied Daniel, right? So he wrote books on Daniel and Revelation. Okay, he obviously likes apocalyptic literature a lot, right? Um, even today, what uh, many people feel is the most significant Scientific discovery, which is the Big Bang Theory, right? So many people mistakenly think it was uh, discovered by Hubble. 
Okay, you know, Edwin Hubble, the Hubble telescope guy. But it wasn't. It was actually discovered by this guy called uh, Georges, uh, Le, don't know, Lemaitre or something. He was a priest all his life. Right? He was the one who proposed uh, the Big Bang Theory. And science is not something which they did in spite of their Christianity, but it's something that they did because they were Christians. That's a that's the funny, funny thing that the world seems to mistake. Because they were Christians, they actually were motivated to find out more about science. So we already said that Copernicus uh, viewed his heliocentric theory as revealing God's grand scheme for the cosmos, and he dedicated his book to the Pope. Uh, Francis Bacon said this, okay? He thought that the scientist was the servant or the interpreter of nature. In discovering those laws of nature, he must acknowledge God created those laws and indeed a better understanding of the universe brought about a better understanding of the glory of God. Kepler wrote, For a long time I wanted to be a theologian. Now, however, behold how through my effort God is being celebrated through astronomy. Now see, these people here, they actually were very interested in science because they felt that by understanding the world, it would reveal the glory of God. So there's a guy in our church called Martin. Have you all met Martin? Uh, he goes to the second service. He works for uh, the Natural Science Institute or something. Anyway, he's going to Germany. He's telling me in a few weeks' time. And we were having lunch last week. And he said that actually, because I told him what I was going to preach on this week, he said actually, there are two major names in which uh, they were going to talk about next week or the weeks later when they go to Germany. And one of this is this guy called Johann Friedrich Wilhelm Herbst or something. right? And he sent me all these documents. And apparently Herbst was a German pastor. But he collected like a lot of craps. So I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was doing his pastoring time. Right? Maybe this was like his, you know, his distressing time. right? So he collected thousands of craps and he he took photographs and he dissected them and he named them. And even till today, the names that he gave all these crabs are the names that they use scientifically today. So even the crabs in Asia, he named, well, they, they use his names, the, the ones that he gave. And there's another guy called Carl Linus or somebody. And he also was uh, uh, someone who's a very strong Christian. And he is the founder of this thing called the Bionomial Nomenclature. Okay. And basically what it means is he names, he, he started this concept of naming, I guess, all sorts of plants and animals using like Homo sapiens and all that stuff. So they're all linked based on their, like, you know, their family tree or whatever. But when he wrote his books, at the back of it, and this is what Martin pointed out to me, and he, he actually sent this to me. He actually wrote it and dedicated it to God. Right. He dedicated his work to God. So on the next slide, this is his book, and this is what he wrote. He, he actually wrote what we just read for our Bible reading. Psalm 104, verse 24. Many are your works, O Lord, in wisdom. You made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And he wrote, Great is our God, and great is his power, and his power is infinite. So, can we really say, uh, next slide, that, that what Dawkins, uh, the, the famous atheist, is true? 
Can it really be that religion, especially Christian religion, teaches people to be satisfied with not understanding? You see, actually, as a Christian, by understanding nature and the world around me, I actually feel I can give glory to God because of the, the marvelous sophistication and intricacy of nature. Now, I think one of the most famous scientists today is this guy called Francis Collins, right? And he is like the head of the, was head of the Human Genome Project. And actually, I saw him on the TV, or Channel News Asia, just last week. I didn't realize if you, you know Channel News Asia is showing a series on cancer? Alright, so you, you look it up, huh? They interviewed him and I was like, hey, that guy is in my sermon, right? Now, he actually, uh, together with his team, discovered the whole human DNA chain and sequenced it. I can't remember, it's like thousands, I, I don't know, it's really highly complex. I, I don't understand these things, right? So next slide, which even like, uh, you know, he was honored in the White House and said, you know, this, this, this work is just amazing because for the first time, the, the human DNA has been sequenced and has been identified uh, right from its beginning to its end. And this is what he said, right? He said, the God of the Bible is also the God of the genome. He can be worshipped in the cathedral or the laboratory. So for him, there's no uh, difference, right, being a Christian and being a scientist because he feels that the, the laws that he's investigating, the understanding of the world actually gives glory to God. In a way, actually, science and Christianity, science and God are not enemies. They are actually in pursuit of understanding. When we see science, science tries to understand what the Bible calls general revelation. Okay, the, the, the Science is trying to understand general revelation. General revelation is where we look at the world and we see God in His creation. That's general revelation. We, we think of God as a marvelous God, an orderly God, an awesome God right, who creates all these things. That's general revelation. But Christianity is interested in truth, in revealed truth. So the Bible says that Christianity as revealed in Jesus and the Bible is specific revelation. Right? Specific revelation coming because God comes into the world to speak to you specifically and relationally. Right? It's about God actually coming to this world in history and revealing himself, specific revelation. Now, when you talk about specific revelation, it's not like science, you know. So science is where I, I can get my chapstick or whatever, I can keep dropping it, okay, to show gravity. Right? I see the data there, I have a theory of gravity, it keeps repeating itself. But specific revelation is different from general revelation, science. Because specific revelation deals with truth in a different realm. You cannot do a scientific experiment to prove history, right? Can you do an experiment to prove the Japanese invaded Singapore? Can you do an experiment to prove the independence of Singapore? You can't. But you can prove that the Japanese invaded Singapore or the independence of Singapore through eyewitness accounts, through evidence, through uh, the recording of history, of testimony. And that's where the Bible comes in, right? Because the next slide, the Bible keeps telling us that just as we have evidence to believe in science, the truth of science. So we have evidence to believe in the truth of the person of Jesus coming to the world, revealing God to us. So in Luke chapter 1, it says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those 
who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In John chapter 20 it says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 it says, Now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for his sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and they appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. You see, when God talks about Jesus coming into the world, he's not asking you to believe in something that you have no evidence to believe in, blind faith. But just as science gives you evidence to believe in something, so the Bible gives you evidence to believe in specific revelation. And it's supported by eyewitness testimony and the evidence. Not the evidence of science, but the evidence of a court of law. And that's why I think science and Christianity are not working to opposite ends. They're not working in cross-purposes. They're actually working along the same line. They're trying to understand things. But they understand things in different ways. There's general revelation, there's specific revelation. And that's why Francis Collins uh, makes a very good point. He says, you know, one of the greatest tragedies of our times is that there's this impression that has been created that science and religion have to be at war. But they don't have to be at war. They're not at war. In fact, you can be a, a very, very devout Christian and be a very, very good scientist. See, in conclusion, I believe that we all want the truth. We are all seekers of truth. We all want to understand things. And I think it's good to understand the world around us. It's good to understand the world through science, through the scientific method. But it's limited. Right? There's only general revelation. When you look at the world around you, you can say, yes, you know, it's a marvelous world, it's a great world, it's a very complex world, and everything makes sense mathematically. And if you believe in God, it's a marvelous God that created this world. But it is limited because you will never really know God personally. The Bible says there's another truth out there that you can understand. And that truth comes about in specific revelation, when God speaks to us personally. And we know He speaks to us personally through the person of Jesus. And that true Jesus, we don't just have a surface understanding of God, but we have a personal, a deep relationship with God. So if you're here today, I hope that your search for truth doesn't just end in science. But your search for truth ends with truly knowing God. And you can only really know God through the specific revelation of hearing Him personally as He comes into the world in Jesus Christ. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, 
We truly want to thank you for the great mysteries that have been revealed through science. That we can see the wonders of nature, the wonders of the cosmos, the wonders of the ocean, the wonders of plant life, the wonders of animals, the wonders of the weather. But dear Father, help us to see that these are just general revelation. That we can never really know you personally unless we come to you in the words recorded for us in the Bible which speak of eyewitness testimony, of evidence, of the words of Jesus. Help us to see that in specific revelation we are able to come to a loving, a deep and abiding relationship with you. And dear Father, help us to see that there is no conflict, there is no contradiction between science and Christianity. But both are seeking to understand, both are seeking to, to look for the truth. And help us, as we see the truth in the world, to never forget the truth about you found in Jesus. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.